I don't like to be ignored. Do you? I remember one time I walked in a place of business, and there were people there who saw me come in, but no one asked if they could help me. They were just there talking, doing their thing, and I was just standing there waiting to be recognized until finally I said, excuse me, excuse me, and they stopped and said, may I help you? That's not a good feeling. I don't, I don't like to be ignored. And you know who else doesn't like to be ignored? God doesn't like to be ignored. But many people live their lives as functional atheists, where they live as if there is no God. And they just ignore God in their daily existence. And there are serious consequences, serious repercussions for living in such a way that you disregard God. And we'll see this in our text this morning. So turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today? Before the Philistines, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today because we recognize our need for you. Lord, we understand that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. If it weren't for the Spirit of God 
indwelling us and filling us. Our minds would be dark and our hearts would be cold. But Holy Spirit, I ask you to take your word and to to use it to change us. Lord, I'm asking you to, to grip our hearts that we might have an urgency when it comes to the things of God. And we might get serious about you. Father, would you do that in our midst? Would you touch us? Would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you make us into who you want us to be? Lord, I ask you to establish my steps in your word today. And we ask and pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've seen, as we've studied this book, that the setting was a time of great spiritual darkness in the life of the nation of Israel. The book begins in the period that's called the period of the Judges. And we know what the time of the Judges was like because when we look at the book of Judges, at the last verse the Bible says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was utter lawlessness and rebellion against God among the people of Israel. It was a time of great spiritual darkness. And they were led by evil, wicked spiritual leaders. Eli was a high priest. His sons Hophni and Phinehas were, were just living in... In rebellion against God, they were, they were poor spiritual leaders. And so the, the nation of Israel is in a quandary here. But God, in 1 Samuel, begins to intervene in the affairs of his nation to lead them out of darkness into spiritual light. And he does it by raising up a new leader, a new prophet named Samuel. We saw last week in chapter 3 that God calls Samuel to the prophetic ministry uh, we talked about the call of God last week. But here's what's interesting. Samuel is mentioned in chapter 4, verse 1, but his name is not mentioned again until chapter 7. So why the three-chapter interlude where we don't even see Samuel's name? Well, here's the deal. Before God puts in place new spiritual leadership, he's going to remove the old spiritual leadership. And chapter 4 is about God removing Hophni and Phinehas and Eli from their role of leadership among the nation of Israel. So, as we think about this story, starting in chapter 4, and by the way, the story begins to revolve around the Ark of the Covenant. You'll see that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. As we think about this story, I want us to think about three truths. I want us to consider three truths. As a matter of fact, if you look there on your notes, I, I said that we, there are three truths that we must consider. These are very, very important things that we need to take note of and consider and apply to our lives. And so number one, the first truth that we must consider is this. There are consequences for disregarding God. There are consequences for disregarding God. Consequences for ignoring God. Consequences for living in such a way, or living as a functional atheist, living in such a way that, that God's not active in your life. You're not considering Him on a daily basis. Now look what it says there in Verse 1, it says, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And the Philistines were constant enemies of Israel. They were a coastal people. They lived on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they were a fierce, warlike people. And we see them constantly throughout the history of Israel battling the Israelites. And they're drawing up for battle. We're not told the cause of the battle. We just know that the Philistines and Israel are about to engage. It says, 
When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now look in verse 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's interesting that the Israelites recognize that God's hand gave the Philistines victory. Why has the Lord defeated the Israelites before the Philistines today? They recognize the Lord was the cause of their defeat. And so we know that the reason they lost was not military strategy or not numbers. The reason they lost is because God had come against his own people to give them into the hands of the evil Philistines. Now, here's what we learn from that. We learn that God may cause unpleasant circumstances to get your attention. The question becomes, why does God defeat his own nation? Why does God let the Philistines have a victory here? The answer is because his people, the Israelites, had turned their back to God. They were doing their own thing. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. They were living in utter lawlessness and rebellion against God. They had wicked spiritual leaders. And God's saying, as long as your back is turned toward me, don't expect victory. And God allows the Philistines to to defeat the Israelites because his people were not on the right path. And God is intervening to get his people's attention. And God may do that same thing in your life, in my life. Sometimes when we're not on the right path, when we're going the wrong direction, God may intervene with painful circumstances to get our attention so that we'll get off the wrong path and get on the right path. Now, this is true for people that don't know Christ, people that aren't saved. They may be doing their own thing, and God may take them through a period where they hit rock bottom so that when they're at rock bottom, they have nowhere to look but up, and they see their need for God, they see their need for a Savior, and they turn to Jesus. God may sometimes send painful circumstances in an unbeliever's life to get their attention. But this is also true of believers in Christ. Sometimes when you're a a Christ follower, but you begin to live as a functional atheist, living as if there is no God, you're just doing your thing day to day, week to week, and ignoring God, disregarding God, sometimes God will intervene in your life in a painful way to get your attention. Hebrews 12 says that God is our Father, in whom the Father loves, He disciplines. If He's your Father and you're His child, sometimes the Father will discipline you, just like a good father does, to get you off the wrong path onto the right path. And so don't be surprised if you're ignoring God, and then the wheels fall off. That may be God seeking to intersect your life to shake you out of your spiritual lethargy and slumber. That may be what God is doing. And so God may cause unpleasant circumstances to get your attention. But secondly, here's what you need to understand. When God uses pain, it is an act of grace. It's not God just being mean. It's not God just retaliating. When God uses pain in your life, he's doing it for your ultimate good. It's an act of grace. The reason that he intervenes in the affairs of the Israelites, the reason he gives the Philistines victory here, is to get his people's attention to shake them from their spiritual apathy. 
to say you cannot live in such a way that you ignore me. You cannot disregard me. You cannot do what is right in your own eyes. That's not how it works. So he gives the Philistines a victory to get their attention. This is an act of God's grace. When God allows or causes something painful in your life to get your attention, it's because God cares about you. You see, God cares so much about you that he is willing to do what's necessary to get your attention. I like what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God will sometimes use pain to wake you up and to wake me up. And that is an act of his grace. But here's the key. When God gets your attention, stop and examine your life. Now, here's our natural impulse when difficulty knocks on our door. Our natural impulse is, okay, I want this to be over with. I I don't want to hurt anymore. So God, make the pain go away. And our impulse is to get through the valley as quickly as possible, right? I just want the pain and the hurt to stop. But maybe when we're in the valley, we need to slow down and say, God, why am I in this valley? God, what do you want to teach me through this difficulty? What needs to be adjusted in my life? What needs to be examined in my heart? Is there something you want to do in my life? And that's the reason you're allowing me to go through this pain. See, a lot of times when we go through difficulty, we just want to get it over with, and we never stop and consider what God's doing, and we miss the point. We miss the point. So the next time you're hurting, and, and maybe you sense that you've been ignoring God and keeping God at arm's length, you haven't been walking with Him and talking with Him, you've just been doing your own thing, living as a functional atheist, and then the wheels fall off. Stop and get alone with God and say, God, show me where I'm missing it. Renew me. Restore me. I repent. I want to be right with you. That's the right response to trouble. That's the right response when when God sends painful consequences in your life. I remember a period of time in uh, high school when I I made a a bad grade for a six-week period and in my school, and, and so my parents got a hold of my report card, and they were not happy, and so dad took away everything that was even remotely fun for my life. I mean, and, and for a few weeks, there was, there, was, there was no fun for Wade. It was, when I was home, I was working on homework or studying, or if, if I got through all my studies and homework, I had to read a book. I mean, it was just pure, it was, it was, it was just, it was just there, was, there was nothing going on there that was, that was uh, exciting, and I had to focus. Now, it would have been it would have been ridiculous for me during that time to just sit there and twiddle my thumbs, right? And not learn the lesson. Wade, you need to study. You need to apply yourself. And I did, and, and, I, and I got back some of my privileges. But when we go through discipline, when God is seeking to get our attention, it would be a tragedy to just twiddle our thumbs and never adjust our lives what God wants to do in our lives, right? And so, the first truth we must consider is this. There are consequences for disregarding God. 
The second truth I want you to see from this passage is this. God is not a good luck charm. God is not a good luck charm. Look what happens here in verse 3. The elders gathered together. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They knew God's hand had come against them. They knew God was causing this defeat. But look at their response. They say, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Isn't it interesting they never stopped to repent? They never stopped to say, God, where have we blown it? God, we want to be right with you. We want to seek you. We want to obey you. We want to be your people. No. They say, okay, we lost. Let's get the ark. If we get the ark, surely we'll have victory. They were using God as a good luck charm. And the ark of the covenant was a box that God commanded uh, Moses to have built that would be in the holy, uh, holy of holies where the, the people would gather to worship God and carry out the sacrificial system. And once a year, the high priest could walk into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the high priest would sprinkle blood on the, the, the lid, the mercy seat of this Ark, uh, in, a, in atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. And when God would, would come down to make his presence known among his people, he would center his presence there on top of the Ark. This was a, this was a very important piece of furniture that God had Moses build. It, was, it, it symbolized God's presence and power and God's purification for his people. And so the people say, well, well let, let's get the ark, and if we take the ark into battle, surely God will give us the victory. Look what happens in verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. This, this ark, this box had had these gold uh, angels with their wings stretched toward one another on top of the box. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the high priests, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. But look what happens in verse 5. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean. And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Notice the plural there. The Philistines were polytheists. They believed there were many gods, a, a pantheon of gods, not just one true God. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so the Israelites believe if they have the ark, God's going to give them a victory. The Philistines believe this ark is a good luck charm, so they're scared. Look what happens next. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great for their fail of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Battle number one, they lost 4,000. Battle number two, with the ark, they lose 30,000. And then look at the next verse. It says, the ark of God was taken. What a tragedy. What a, what a defeat we see here. And it's because the Israelites thought if they had the ark of God, God would give them what they wanted. God would give them a victory. But guess what? God is not a good luck charm. 
You see, many people treat God just like the Israelites. Many people think that they can ignore God in their daily lives, but then ask Him to bless something they want to see happen. Ask Him to bless their endeavors. That's not how it works. You don't ignore God in your life, and all of a sudden when you want something, you say, God, I need your help now. That, that's treating God like a, like a four-leaf clover. Treating God like a lucky penny. I understand superstition. Growing up, my grandmother was very superstitious. When we drove over railroad tracks, we'd have to hold up our feet. You couldn't open an umbrella in the house. Black cats were feared. I've grown in my relationship with the Lord now, my knowledge of the Bible. I know that superstition is, is not real, that God is real. There's one true God. He's in control. I don't have to trust four-leaf clovers. Amen? But, but I understand superstition. And, and the Israelites were using the ark as a superstitious object. If we had the ark, surely God will give us victory. And many people try to use God in that same way. They try to manipulate God. But here's the deal. God will not be manipulated. God will not be manipulated. The word manipulate means to to handle or control. And the, the Israelites were trying to control God. If we have the ark, God, you will be compelled, you will be forced to give us victory. We have our good luck charm now. Give us a, a, a victory, and yet it doesn't go that way. Why? Why does God let the Philistines defeat them soundly? To show them that he will not be controlled. He's not a good luck charm. But here's the question I want you to ask of yourself. What are some ways that you may try to manipulate God? What are some ways that we try to manipulate God to do what we think he ought to do? Let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, we, we manipulate God when we only pay attention to him when we want something. We manipulate God when we only pay attention to him when we want something. In other words, as long as, long as life is going okay, I'm not going to think about God, talk to God, Seek God, worship God, serve God, because life's going okay. But when I want something, when I want a problem fixed, or, or I want a, a blessing in my life, I want God to bless my work, or, or give me a new home, or whatever, I'm going to get kind of religious. I'm going to start talking about God all of a sudden. God will not be manipulated. That, that's spare tire theology. You know what spare tire theology is? It's when you never give God a thought until you need God. A lot of people treat God like a spare tire. You, you never think about your spare tire until you have a flat, right? All of a sudden, you need a spare tire, and all of a sudden, the spare tire becomes very, very important. And a lot of people do the same thing with God. As, as long as I think I've got life under control, as long as I'm handling life, I'm not going to give God a second thought. Oh, but when I need him... I'm going to get suddenly very religious and spiritual sounding because I want God to bless. Listen, that's using God like a four-leaf clover. God will not be manipulated. We manipulate God when we, listen, perform religious duties because we think God will respond by giving us what we want. We perform religious duties because we think God will respond by giving us what we want. God, I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm checking all the boxes. And so, Lord, you are obliged to do what I think you ought to do. I think you should give me this or give me that. 
or do this or do that. So God, I've got all the boxes checked. I'm ready for you to come through on your end of the bargain. That's manipulation. That's not walking with God. Sometimes we try to manipulate God by by imposing our timetable upon Him. Hey, God, I think this thing ought to happen right now. God, do it now because that's my timetable, right? God, I want you to meet my timetable, not I'm trusting you for your timetable. I want you to be on my agenda, my schedule, because I must be smarter than you. So God, act right now. You ever done that? You ever been impatient with God? You know what that is? It's manipulation. I've got it figured out, God. I know when you ought to do what you ought to do, and so do it. But God will not be handled. He will not be controlled. He taught his people that lesson. You think you've got a good luck charm? I'm going to let you be soundly defeated. He will not be manipulated, but he will be worshipped. God will see that he is worshipped. See, God is not a genie in a bottle. He is the eternal creator of the universe. He is God Almighty. He's not there to meet our whim. When we have a whim, He is there to be worshipped because He's the one true God. So we need to worship Him, not try to manipulate Him. I like this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He writes, Here, speaking of the Israelites, was a pressure tactic, a way of if you'll pardon the expression, twisting God's arm. That is not faith, but superstition. It is what I call rabbit foot theology. When we, whether Israelites or or Christians, operate this way, our concern, listen, is not to seek God, but to control Him. Not to submit to God, but to use Him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. Isn't it interesting that Israelites never repent? They never say, God, we've blown it, we're sorry. Now, in chapter 7, we're going to see the Israelites repent under Samuel's leadership. But here in chapter 4, they don't repent. They never say, we've blown it, God. They say, hey, we just need better luck. We need a good luck charm. Davis goes on to say, Whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful. Well, then you know the ark of God has been captured again. How do you relate to God? Does your heart sing, thou art worthy? Or does your heart say, God, you're useful. When I need you, I'll call you, and I expect you to come running. That's manipulation, and God will not be manipulated. The Israelites learned a very painful lesson that day. But here's one third truth I want you to see. The thought that God could take his hand off of our lives is terrifying. The thought that God could take his hand off of our lives is terrifying. Look back with me in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 11. The Bible says the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, 
Hophni and Phineas died. Now, we've seen that Hophni and Phineas were evil, evil characters. They were wicked. And God had told Eli back in chapter 2, verse 34, that as a sign that I'm taking away the high priesthood from your family, your sons, Hophni and Phineas, will die on the same day. That's exactly what happens here in verse 11. Hophni and Phineas die on the same day in this battle. You see, God keeps his word. God had told them he was going to judge them. God had told them I'm going to take away the, the priesthood from your family. And God comes through. God always keeps his word. And Eli and the Israelites learned that lesson on that day. But secondly, God's judgment is thorough and severe. When God gets your attention, when God judges you for ignoring him, it is going to be thorough and severe. Look what happens in verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli, the great high priest, was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. In other words, Eli knew it was a bad idea to take the ark into battle. He knew that the Israelites didn't really care about God. They wanted a good luck charm. And so Eli's concerned about this very important piece of furniture. It says there next, the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, verse 14, he said, what does the noise of this commotion mean? And the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there's also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate. And his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. The bad news comes in waves over Eli's life. There's been a great slaughter of your people. Your two sons are both dead. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken, and, and all of this news literally kills Eli. His old body can't take this bad news, and he falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. What a sad, tragic ending of a life that could have been used for the glory of God. Because of his lack of leadership among the people of Israel, his family had suffered and been judged, his nation had been affected, and he did not finish well. You see, God's judgment is thorough and severe. We see the judgment here is defeat, death, and departure. The Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines and the, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God so it was as if God was not with them anymore. And he wasn't. He departed. He wasn't going to bless them anymore as they were living in that condition. God's judgment is thorough and severe. And, and here's how it applies to us. God will often judge by removing his power and manifest presence. Sometimes God will judge... By just taking his hand off of our lives. And that possibility should terrify you. And if it doesn't terrify you, and if it doesn't terrify me, we don't understand the God of the Bible. 
Look what it says in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God had was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So the shock of, of all of the disaster sends her into an early labor. And about the time of her death, and so this pregnancy took her life. There were complications. About the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod. That word means no glory, or where has the glory gone? That's what the word Ichabod means. Why did she name her son Ichabod? Look what she says. The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. In other words, Phineas' wife understood God is not with us right now. God is not blessing us with his presence and his power. He's given us into the hands of our enemies. She understood they were not under God's hand of blessing. They were under God's hand of judgment. And you and I need to understand that sometimes God will, will judge us by just removing his power and removing his manifest presence from our lives. God will sometimes judge you and me by removing his hand of blessing. Now this can be true, first of all, of a person. Of a person. Over in Luke chapter 15, the famous uh, parable of the prodigal son, the, the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to live with you. I don't want to serve you. I want to do my own thing, go my own direction. So give me my money, which was greatly disrespectful. And what does the father do? Father gives him the money. It's okay. Go do your thing. Go, go experience the consequences of your bad decisions. He removes his protection and his blessing from his son's life. And his son goes through, through great, great pain until he comes to his senses. Why? The father let him go that direction, right? I want you to hear me carefully. When you choose to ignore God, sometimes God will let you ignore him. He'll just take his hands off and say, okay, do what you want to do and see how it turns out for you. Ignore me and tell me how that goes. This can be true of an individual. Now, the Christian who knows Jesus has been promised in the Bible that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? When you are saved, you are eternally secure. You're in the hands of God. Nothing or no one will snatch you out of the hands of God. So, so the God's presence will never be taken from you as a Christian. But sometimes, even as a Christian, God will remove his hand of blessing and power and say, try life on your own and see how that goes for you. This can be true of a person, an individual. Secondly, this can be true of a family. 1 Samuel 2, verse 31. All of Eli's family is judged because of Eli's lack of spiritual leadership. Eli's family suffered the consequences of his... Decision not to take God seriously. And when you choose to ignore God and do your own thing in life, it will affect you and it will affect your family. God will just take his hand off of a family. Take his, his blessing, his protection, his power off of a family and let them experience pain, judgment, 
difficulty. This can be true of a church. When a church is not living in biblical obedience to God, when they don't have the right mission and the right heart, the right dependence, God will remove his power and blessing from a church. Say, wait, that's not possible. God wouldn't do that. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 2. The context here is Jesus addressing through a vision to John, the church in Ephesus. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Everybody look at me for a moment. The church in Ephesus was doctrinally sound and really busy doing religious stuff. But their busyness was not generated from a love relationship with Christ. They were just busy. And they got so busy and distracted, they didn't love Jesus anymore. And Jesus is saying here, in effect, your religious duty, apart from loving me, means nothing. So he says, look at what he says in verse 4. You've left your first love, therefore, verse 5, remember from where you fall and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, watch this, and will remove your lampstand out of its place. The lampstand was a symbol of God's presence. And Jesus is saying, if you keep doing religious stuff and you don't love me, if I'm not preeminent, I'll remove my power and presence from your church. And you can play religion, you can play church, but I won't be there. That's what he's saying in Revelation chapter 2. God can remove his hand from a church. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, amen? We need to make sure the main thing is the main thing is a church. Or else God will remove his hand. And then there's one last aspect of this. God will sometimes judge by removing his hand of blessing. This can be true of a nation. When a nation turns their back to God, they should not expect the blessing of God. God will sometimes remove his hand and let a nation live without his presence and power. It's as if God will look at a nation like our nation. And say, okay, you don't want me in your nation? You won't have me in your nation. God just removes his hand. And I believe we are either dangerously close to that, or we've already even crossed the line into that. Where God will, God, listen, God's not going to play games with our nation. If we keep ignoring him and doing our own thing, and rejecting him, and disregarding him, we should not expect his power and blessing and protection over our nation. He'll take his hand off. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a, a disgrace to any people. And so, God will sometimes remove his hand of blessing from a nation. So here's what I want you to walk away with. The thought that God could take his hand off of our lives is terrifying, is it not? Terrifying. You say, wait, this is a bad news chapter. I mean, this is depressing. Defeat. 
death, departure. It's depressing. I can tell you this. This is not the last chapter in the Bible. Amen? We're going to see in chapter 5, God continues to work and show His power and His might. He preserves His people, Israel. He protects His people, Israel. He keeps a remnant of faithful followers there, raises up new leadership so that one day, listen, through His nation, Israel, He can send a Messiah named Jesus. Chapter 4, 1 Samuel says God glory, God's glory has departed. John 1 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And so Jesus is God's glory coming to you. And so, even though this was very bad news for the nation of Israel, there's still good news because God loves sinners and God sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. And then after He died, He rose from the dead. He's alive today. He's mighty to save. Let this passage not leave you in a state of despondency. Let this passage point you to Jesus who is the glory of God.